Hi there, you're listening to Roscast, a personal podcast for Ros Richards, created by me, Duncan Gear, And me, Melissa Gear. So first things first, happy birthday. We hope you're having an amazing day over in Reading. Um, Melissa is going to explain to you a bit about what this is all about. What's, what is this all about, Melissa? Happy birthday! This is our birthday present to you that we've uh, planned together jointly. We've decided to give you something that you can do while you're in lockdown. So we're going to read uh, articles, uh, short stories or other things that have caught our interest to you. Um, Things that perhaps are relevant to what's going on in our lives at that time and that we want to share with you. Um, We know that we all three of us enjoy uh, discussing things together engaging our minds but we can't do it together in person at the moment Um, we have so many shared interests and uh, as well as reading things it's also walking so (laughs) our idea is that you can listen to this podcast while you're on a walk and then uh, perhaps afterwards tell us your thoughts yeah so here's how this is going to work um every month on the 25th for the next year you're going to get a new episode of uh, the roscast um it will feature a reading from one of us and then brief reflections on that reading from the other person we're going to alternate each month so one month i'll read and melissa will give her reflections and then vice versa and obviously we hope that you'll discuss your reflections with us back on telegram because this is your birthday today though you are getting an extra reading from us you're going to get one reading from each of us a birthday bonus <laughs> and um we're going to start with a reading from melissa so uh we hope you enjoy it here we go it's not just you that's celebrating a birthday this january in uh On the 15th of January, Wikipedia celebrated its 20-year birthday. So I thought I would read to you an article reflecting on the future of Wikipedia. So first I'm going to read a little introduction from the Web Foundation, which is the organisation started by Tim Berners-Lee when he started the internet. And it's just a sort of introduction to Wikipedia. When you want to find something out, you go to Wikipedia. It's difficult to overstate and impossible to fully measure the impact that this engine of information has had on our world. Beyond that, the site is also a truly global community, one of the most collaborative projects in the history of Earth, and perhaps the closest thing we have to an online public square. Since it launched in 2001, Wikipedia has become one of the most beloved and trusted sites on the web, notching up more than 15 billion visits each month across 1.5 billion devices, making it the eighth most visited site in the world. As part of an internet riddled with problems and dysfunction, Wikipedia stands tall as an example of the web at its best, serving humanity. Though, of course, our favourite online encyclopedia is not perfect. If it is truly to be for everyone, it must address a number of challenges. A lack of diversity in its editing ranks and patterns of harassment and toxic behaviour chief among them. And so, on that note, I'm now going to skip to an article by Noam Cohen of Wired, which is uh, reflecting on uh, Wikipedia's biggest challenge. 
Wikipedia's biggest challenge awaits in 2021. Changes proposed by the Wikimedia Foundation to diversify its community of editors raise existential questions for the online encyclopedia. Facts are stubborn things, and that stubbornness was a vital asset for Wikipedia in 2020, as it unapologetically banned from its pages disinformation about the COVID-19 pandemic and the presidential election. The contrast was sharp with global digital platforms like Facebook and YouTube, which slowly and often ineffectually responded to false political and scientific claims living on their servers. Yet, as Wikipedia begins a new year with a burnished reputation as a trusted, fact-based resource, it faces thorny questions beyond accuracy that threaten its grand encyclopedic mission. Can the community of editors and administrators who collect and present the facts become as sturdy and reliable as the facts themselves? The fear is that unless Wikipedia diversifies its editing ranks, it will be unable to produce the needed context, proportionality, fairness and imagination to accurately collect the world's knowledge. In 2021, the Wikimedia Foundation, which runs the more than 300 different versions of Wikipedia, plans to finalise a uniform code of conduct that details unacceptable behaviour among the project's editors, including insults, sexual harassment and doxing, and assigns corresponding punishments. The new system, which is being fashioned in consultation with the editors and administrators across the encyclopedias, would differ significantly from the current decentralised disciplinary apparatus. Not only would there be standard uniforms of conduct, but there likely would be easier access to the protection of privacy for those who make complaints of harassment. These changes are vital to having a diverse community of editors, its advocates say, but because the current system places a heavy burden on the marginalised groups most frequently targeted, women, people of colour and queer people, by having them speak out publicly against their abusers, they risk retaliation. A foundation report on gender equity recounted a number of examples of harassment that followed from calling out misbehaviour, like the editor who described having porn posted on their user page after, a complain after complaining of porn posted on another user editor's user page. Once a harassment complaint is public, there can be added pressure on the person being harassed to accept minimal punishments against abusive editors who are popular in the community. Prevented from getting justice, editors who've been targeted by harassers frequently choose to leave. At the same time, the Foundation's also proposing to expand its board from 10 members to 16 to give more influence to experts from outside the community. Together, these moves by the Foundation would steer Wikipedia towards a path that's less inward-facing and more reliant on the outside professionals at the Foundation. The fear among some long-time editors is that these changes could stifle the grassroots energy that's taken the project so far in its 20 years. Wikipedia isn't a social club, they would point out, but a project meant to accomplish something, and thus more likely to generate personality clashes and hurt feelings. An inordinate focus on civility, the argument goes, can be a distraction from doing the work. Stifle the passion and you'll have articles with the tone and vitality of an annual report. The opposite fear, of course, is that without any changes, Wikipedia will fail in its ultimate, permission, in its ultimate mission to provide, in the words of its early visionary, Jimmy Wales, free access to the sum of all human knowledge because its active editors will remain heavily skewed toward white men from wealthy countries with a tech background.
Consider the women running for the United States Senate, or carrying out Nobel Prize caliber science, who were judged not notable enough to warrant a Wikipedia article. Or the range of important African-American institutions and people, like the Greater Bethel AME Church in Harlem, or the costume designer Judy Deering, whose articles were only created during editathons dedicated to expanding what's included in Wikipedia. Ultimately, both sides in this dispute recognise that what appears in the encyclopedia is a reflection of its editors. They just disagree about whether the community of editors needs to change how it operates. More than a decade ago, I wrote an essay comparing Wikipedia to a vibrant city, how it can send you down unlikely alleyways via the many links embedded on a single page. There are links to articles about other people or places mentioned, links to categories of articles on similar topics, links to articles on the same topic in different languages with unexpected illustrations, which of course have their own peculiar connections. The entire enterprise was city-like, in that adventurous, ambitious people had gathered to build something lasting together, expanding up and down and all around. In my conception, to visit Wikipedia was to be a flaneur, wandering unharmed from interesting edifice to interesting edifice. I paid little attention to those in marginalised groups who find Wikipedia full of frightening dark alleys and abrasive characters. In 2020, I decided to travel to some of the unwelcome corners of Wikipedia that I didn't write about a decade ago. That's how I came across an article obsessed with exposing the clay feet of Benjamin Banneker, a black inventor and scientist in colonial America. This was not the Wikipedia article about Banneker himself, which covers his long life in inventing, surveying and mathematics, but a purported companion piece, thousands of words long, with 250 footnotes entitled Mythology of Benjamin Banneker. The article finds examples of praise for Banneker for building a wooden clock or surveying the area that became Washington, D.C., and then quotes accounts questioning whether the historical record supports such praise. Over the years, editors have shown up to complain about the article, including one wondering whether the Einstein article should similarly quote from the book Einstein, the Incorrigible Plagiarist. But objections to this and other obscure, potentially offensive articles rarely carry the day, unless an experienced editor or administrator can be enlisted to mount a campaign to reverse course. Since he began editing in 2004, Ian Ramjohn, who's from Trinidad and Tobago, has carefully tracked how marginalised groups are treated within Wikipedia's editing core and on its pages. He's seen progress in driving out racism and sexism in articles that receive a lot of views. Problems tend to remain in more obscure topics, he wrote in an email. The fewer people who have seen an article, the less likely it is that someone will have done the work to push back against this kind of thing. A lot of Wikipedians avoid conflict, so they won't be inclined to start something. Others may not feel confident enough in their stock of social capital. I can take risks that someone who hasn't been around as long as me might not, or want to, to endure the stress of these fights. In some future version of Wikipedia that takes harassment more seriously, one can imagine an increasingly diverse crew of editors empowered to oppose offensive content, even if that content is fact-based. In my travels, I also wound up at a detailed account of a Nazi-produced children's book that, until recently, linked to a neo-Nazi site 
where an English translation of the book was sold. One visitor left a comment wondering if every slur against Jews really needed a link to a library's copy of that particular section. We need a reliable source for the claims about what the book says, not the hateful propaganda book itself, commented the visitor. For that 2009 essay, I had looked to the writings of Lewis Mumford, a historian and great thinker of cities, who saw tolerance for outsiders as at the root of urban life. Even before the city is a place of fixed residence, he wrote, it begins as a meeting place to which people periodically return. The magnet comes before the container, and this ability to attract non-residents to it for intercourse and spiritual stimulus, no less than trade, remains one of the essential criteria of the city, a witness to its essential dynamism, as opposed to the more fixed and indrawn form of the village, hostile to the outsider. This is the gnawing challenge for Wikipedia. After a period of wild, unrestrained growth, it needs some civilising laws. The equivalent of a Fair Housing Act and safety inspections to ensure it won't exclude certain groups from its pages and allow hateful material to grow and fester. Just as it takes more than bricks to build a city, it takes more than facts to build a, fr a thriving encyclopedia. All right, so the article that I've chosen to read you today um, is called uh, We Need Courage, Not Hope to Face Climate Change. And it's by a climate scientist and writer called Kate Marvel. She wrote this in 2018, but this was recommended to me the other day by Alice Bell from Possible as a good guide as to why we don't talk too much about hope at Possible. Um, I read it through and I really like it. It kind of strikes a chord in me. It isn't wholly optimistic, but at the same time, it, yeah, it encourages courage. So I wanted to share it with you, I guess, for, for that reason. So this is um, We Need Courage, Not Hope to Face Climate Change by Kate Marvel. As a climate scientist, I'm often asked to talk about hope, particularly in the current political climate. Audiences want to be told that everything will be all right in the end. And unfortunately, I have a deep-seated need to be liked and a natural tendency to optimism that leads me to accept more speaking invitations than is good for me. Climate change is bleak, the organizers always say. Tell us a happy story. Give us hope. The problem is, I don't have any. I used to believe there was hope in science. The fact we know anything at all is a miracle. For some reason, the whole world is hung on a skeleton made of physics, and I found comfort in this structure, in the knowledge that buried under layers of greenery and dirt lies something that's universal. It's something to know how to cut away the flesh of existence and see the clean white bones underneath. All of us obey the same laws, whether we know them or not. Look closely, however, and the structure of physics dissolves into uncertainty. We live in a statistical world, in a limit where we experience one of only many possible outcomes. Our clumsy senses perceive only gross aggregates blind to the rolling chaos underneath. We're limited in our ability to see the underlying stimuli that, en masse, create an event. Temperature, for example, is a state created by the random motions of millions of tiny molecules. We feel heat or cold, not the motion of any individual molecule. 
When something is heated up, its tiny constituent parts move faster, increasing its internal energy. They don't move at the same speed. Some are quick, some are slow, but there are billions of them. And in the aggregate, their speed dictates their temperature. The internal energy of molecule motion is turned outward in the form of electromagnetic radiation. Light comes in different flavors. What we see occupies a tiny portion of a vast electromagnetic spectrum. Light is a wave of sorts, and the distance between its peaks and its troughs determines the energy that it carries. Cold, low-energy objects emit stretched waves with long, lazy intervals between peaks. Hot objects radiate at shorter wavelengths. To have a temperature is to shed light into your surroundings. You have one. The light you give off is invisible to the naked eye. You're shining all the same, incandescent with the power of a 100-watt bulb. The planet on which you live is also illuminated by the visible light of the sun, and it radiates infrared light in turn to the blackness of space. There is nothing that doesn't have a temperature. Cold space itself is illuminated by the afterglow of the Big Bang. Even black holes radiate, lit by the strangeness of quantum mechanics. There is nowhere from which light can't escape. These same laws that flood the world with light dictate the behavior of a carbon dioxide molecule in the atmosphere. CO2 is transparent to the sun's rays, but the planet's infrared outflow hits a molecule just such in, in just such a way as to set it in motion. Carbon dioxide dances when it's hit by a quantum of such light, arresting the light on its path into space. And when the dance stops, the quantum is released back into the atmosphere from which it came. No one feels the consequences of this individual catch and release, but the net result of many of these little dances is an increase in the temperature of the planet. More CO2 molecules means a warmer atmosphere and a warmer planet. Warm seas fuel hurricanes, warm air bloats with water vapor, the rising sea encroaches on the land. The consequences of tiny random acts echo throughout the world. I understand the physical world because, at some level, I understand the behavior of every small thing. I know how to assemble a coarse aggregate from the sum of multiple tiny motions. Individual molecules, water droplets, parcels of air, quanta of light, their random movements merge to yield a predictable and understandable whole. But physics is unable to explain the whole of the world in which I live. The planet teems with other people, seven billion fellow damaged creatures. We come together and break apart, seldom adding up to a coherent, predictable whole. I've lived a fortunate, charmed, loved life, and this means that I have infinite, gullible faith in the goodness of the individual, but I have none whatsoever in the collective. How else can it be that the sum total of so many tiny acts of kindness is a world incapable of stopping, so Im stopping something so eminently stoppable? California burns. Islands and coastlines are smashed by hurricanes. At night, the stars are washed out by city lights, and the world is illuminated by the flickering ugliness of reality television. We burn coal, oil, and gas, heedless of the consequences. Our laws are changeable and shifting. The laws of physics are fixed. Change is already underway. Individual worries and sacrifices have not slowed it. Hope is a creature of privilege. 
We know that things will be lost, but it is comforting to believe that others will bear the brunt of it. We are the lucky ones who suffer little tragedies, unmoored from the brutality of history. Our loved ones are taken from us one by one through accident or illness, not wholesale by war or natural disaster. But the scale of climate change engulfs even the most fortunate. There is now no weather that we haven't touched, no wilderness immune from our encroaching pressure. The world we once knew is never coming back. I have no hope that these changes can be reversed. We're inevitably sending our children to live on an unfamiliar planet. But the opposite of hope is not despair, it's grief. Even while resolving to limit the damage, we can mourn. And here, the sheer scale of the problem provides a perverse comfort. We're in this together. The swiftness of the change, its scale and inevitability, binds us into one, broken hearts trapped together under a warming atmosphere. We need courage, not hope. Grief, after all, is the cost of being alive. We're all fated to live lives shot through with sadness, and we're not worth less for it. Courage is the resolve to do well without the assurance of a happy ending. Little molecules, random in their movement, add together to a coherent whole. Little lives do not. But here we are, together on a planet radiating ever more into space, where there is no darkness, only light we can't see.